Welcome to Engage Arizona. There is much to celebrate as the 2021 legislative session's new laws go into effect this week. We will get into all of that and how it impacts you. First, an update on the main pro-life law. A federal judge has put on hold one key provision of the law designed to protect preborn babies with Down syndrome and other genetic conditions from targeted abortions. That provision will not take effect as we wait for the case to make its way through the courts. But the judge did allow the other challenged provision to take effect, which ensures all Arizona laws will be interpreted to value human life at every stage of development. There is much more to that law and others. We discuss them now with CAP's policy team. Welcome to Engage Arizona. I'm Cindy Dahlgren here with CAP President Kathy Herod and VP of Policy Lisa Brugg. This is the week that all the hard work from the past session comes to fruition. We have 14 CAP-supported laws going into effect, or that just went into effect this week, uh, along with several other relevant laws. So it's important to talk a bit about these new laws because most people really don't have the time that we have or the interest (laughs) to really dig into these things like we do. Uh, But also, you know, we need to be aware of the laws that affect our lives. And and also, I think, uh, if you really have a passion for life and and, um, families and marriages and religious freedom, that when you know about these laws going into effect, it is encouraging and it's inspiring. So we're going to talk a little bit. Let's start with a brief recap of the CAP-supported laws, the pro-life laws. We have a lot of them this session, this past session. What's going into effect? We have a major pro-life law going into effect that will uh, prohibit, among other things, prohibit the abortion pill being sent through the mail, and that's for the protection of the woman. Very much so. The abortion industry during COVID was able to promote sending abortion pills through the mail, chemical abortion pills. We know that that women suffer when they take these pills without a medical exam in person. Arizona law already prohibited telemedicine abortion, telehealth abortions, but they get around that by sending abortion pills in from out of state and that type of thing. And so this is no, no chemical abortion pills by courier or by mail. That's a really important part of going into effect. And depending on what happens with the Biden administration gives us fighting, uh, you know, kind of something to fight on and uh, to stand our ground on as a state that no, in our state, you can't do that. Yeah. And I think that we know that the Biden administration is pushing that hard, but it's nice to have a breather here um, and understand that this is not only for the protection of the unborn, but this is the protection of the woman. And here at CAP, we care as much about the woman as we do about the preborn baby and protecting her and making sure she's getting proper medical care is, is the key provision, I think, to this yeah, exactly. There's several other, though, um, you know, you maybe think smaller provisions, but it really a lot of them are very important. And um, Kathy, last week you mentioned um, how the the provision that will require either the cremation or the burial of the remains mm-hmm. of the preborn baby that was aborted is very important because it establishes that this is a human being and its dignity. So that I think is a, a even though it seems small, it's it's key. And there are some other um, provisions as well, including the fact that schools, right, and public schools cannot, um, you know, the universities cannot refer for abortions or do abortions. Uh, what are some of the other provisions? It it, um, it repealed a pre-Roe law that would punish the, the woman, woman for, for getting an abortion. abortion. To clean that up. Yeah, so there are um, several things. Yeah, and the, and the cremation or burial is super important. I think as a, a woman sits there and has to make that decision, um, I think that could be life-changing. Um, I don't know in a panic um, or trying to hide or 
in fear and when you're having an abortion or thinking about having one, maybe having to make that decision might mm. a light might go on and, and and be helpful and save that unborn child. That's my hope. Yeah. I think it's also important to that before Roe versus Wade was decided that legalized abortion, Arizona law would have charged the woman with a crime for having an abortion. And in the pro-life movement, we, as Lisa mentioned earlier, we love them both. We're not about trying to put women in jail because they've had an abortion. And so to repeal that law, to just um, take away that narrative uh, from the other side, it was very important to do and, and to understand that we're not after the woman. We're after the person who's performing the abortion, providing the abortion, because they are the perpetrators of a of of unjust action, even a crime against the unborn child and the mother. Yeah, exactly. And one of our other big victories, of course, in the um, life, the pro-life arena this past session is the, um, the family health pilot program, which we've been trying to get for three years. So let's talk a little (laughs) bit about that. This is funding for a new program coming in to really um, seek out and help those women who are abortion minded to let them know that there are resources available to them and then help connect them to those resources. Yeah, I think the exciting thing about this one is it it really will solidify a statewide network of providers um, who can help women not just um, when they're pregnant, but help them through the first couple years of their child's life with resources that are desperately needed, um, especially right now in this pandemic. And there's a lot of uh, high unemployment and a lot of single moms and some single dads who are really struggling to figure out how they're going to work, how they're going to um, provide for their kids. So um, I believe we had a couple of um, applicants and the state is now weighing um, the qualifications of them. As the law states, they can give the money for this program to up to two nonprofits, or at least two nonprofits in the state of Arizona to do the work. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, and I was just listening to a webinar the other night with um, the Students for Life, and they were talking about how in some of the research that they did, they were surprised to find that a lot of people just don't even know that the um, pregnancy resource centers are are available to them, are nearby, and what they will do for them. So to have this program come in and not only um, help find the women who need that information and then um, let them know that these resources are available and then connect them to them. So everybody knows where to go to get an yeah, abortion. Yeah, it's proactive. <laughs> Instead of putting ads out saying, if you're pregnant, call one 800 Right. It reaches out to them and says, we noticed that you're looking for help, and here's a number you can call today, and there's somebody there who will listen to you. That's the key. It's the speed. And uh, again, technology has gotten us to a place where we're able to do these things and, and help a lot of young young women out. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Also, um, the um, adoption is a loving option. <laughs> well, so it's already current law that um, Arizona's Department of Health Services has to have the adoption information on their website, but it wasn't not yeah, easy to find. find. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and, the, and what we're doing right now is putting together uh, the part of the law. It puts together an adoption task force of very highly qualified people who will decide what is on that website. But it will be a designated link on the um, DHS website that will take you to a comprehensive list of uh, adoption options um, and resources and and folks to um, whether it's legal or um, everybody on there. It's an exhaustive list. Um, So we're actually in the process of one of the exciting things about getting all the laws passed is now then you implement them, which can be harder than getting the law 
laws (laughs) sometimes. Um, And this one is pretty comprehensive because it, it, it deals with a lot of people coming together to make decisions on what that website should look like. But it's very exciting because once it's done, it'll be designated. It'll be easy to find. Mm -hmm. As soon as a a person goes to that website, they can click right on it and everything will be at their fingertips. Instead of now, you have to go do literal searches through their search engine to find out where it's all buried. And when you're in crisis, when you have, you've just found out that you have an unplanned pregnancy and you're in crisis, you don't have the wherewithal or the time or or anything to be searching and digging for that information. Right, you want the information now. Exactly. Yeah. So um, another another law that went into effect is similar to the provision in the major pro-life law in that it, it changes the language in all of Arizona abortion law. Right now, they actually call, you know, products of conception, which I think is very, um, yeah, ick. And, and so now they will all have to be changed to uh, unborn child. Is that unborn right? child. Mm-hmm. And that, again, goes to the dignity of it. Um, also, there's another one, the adoption. Um, so there was a, a law that went into effect or a bill that they were working on that we got involved in a little bit along the way. And it was to the the bill was to um, allow people who were adopted to be able to find their birth parents when they turn 18. And so um, we, we were kind of instrumental, or at least helpful in um, implementing a provision. Yes, we um, promoted an amendment that the um, Representative Roberts, who sponsored the bill, accepted to ensure that that birth mother who placed a child in the past and who thought that she was placing the child with her confidentiality being protected, that the child would not be able to find her unless she said, yes, I want to be connected. Uh, and, and that matters a lot for birth mothers, you know, that, that when you, if you're deciding whether to place your child, whether um, it's, it's a very difficult decision, it's a very emotional decision, and that if you place your child, that you're the one that decides whether you want to be contacted or not, instead of it being an ad- automatic open records. Most adoptions today are open adoptions, and the birth mother and the adopted child and the adoptive parents, you know, have some type of contact but not all are and we felt very strongly that birth mothers need to retain that right to not be identified um, if they choose not to be and so the the new law appropriately I think balances that um, birth mothers moving forward now will be more aware that that yes the adopted child could find them and it shouldn't be a problem moving forward but if you've got a birth mother that say 10 or 15 years ago placed a child for adoption or as I've always said you may have placed a child 30 years ago and this child then shows up on your doorstep, and you might not even, your current family might not even know that you placed a child, um, whether in your past. And so, you know, we just want to, you know, all, all of it's about encouraging both mothers to choose adoption when they don't want a parent. And this was something that could have uh, done the opposite and, and had a chilling effect on adoption. And so we wanted to make sure that that, that didn't happen. Yeah, so it sounds like a good balance in that law altogether. Um, another one is, um, this one came across kind of accidentally because, Kathy, you saw an article in the paper uh, <laughs> last year in the middle of session or early on in session regarding the crisis standards of care and what was happening during the COVID yeah. situation. This is kind of one of my favorite examples, I think, of how a bill could become law because it just, I happen to, I don't always read the um, Arizona Republic these days, but uh, in summer of tw- and, yeah, in summer of 2020, I happened to notice a news article about something called the critical standards crisis standards of care, and the something a group locally, the Arizona Center for Disability Law, had filed a complaint with the the federal government, saying that these standards were discriminatory, 
and they had done what's called an addendum. It's one of these great bureaucratic things that every state has these standards of care. And I, I called, um, well, I'll call um, now Senator Nancy Bartow, who was chairing the House Health Committee at the time. Hey, have you heard, do you know anything about these crisis standards of care or, you know, what's <laughs> going on? No, she's never heard of them. So it's a totally bureaucratic type of thing, big, big, heavy document, bureaucratic document with this addendum that said that in the light of the COVID pandemic, that if there were resources, like we all heard about ventilators might be in scarce supply, that who gets a ventilator basically would be decided on life expectancy. So the Arizona Center for Disability Law, representing disabled people, said that was discriminatory because it was. Uh, so what happened is uh, the Arizona Center for Disability Law had been negotiating with Department of Health Services for some time, been ignored. Um, they eventually came to a settlement. But in the meantime, um, miraculously, I would say, a law was passed and goes into effect, went into effect this week that says that it has to be, those decisions have to be made on short-term mortality, on short-term, not life expectancy. And I'm sure we can all think of examples where, you know, someone has COVID or some other public emergency that might come up in the future, and they may have a life expectancy, say, to 80 years old, and next to them is the person with, maybe it's with Down syndrome, maybe it's a quadriplegic, maybe it's something else, some disabled person, and their life expectancy, say, is 60 years old, but they're not as seriously ill. And that 80-year-old is maybe a week away from death, but the disabled person's not. And so the one who's a week away from death is going to get the ventilator, but not the one that you know, has a shorter life expectancy. So these decisions should be made on you know, short-term mortality. Um, it was a blessing to be able to work with the Arizona Center for Disability Law. Um, we stayed behind the scenes largely, but we're um, capsule and that was really seeing the need, um, getting the bill drafted, um, getting testimony provided, working with the AZ Center for Disability Law. And it was a bipartisan vote um, that, um, that it, we had a number of um, Democrats vote yes because they you know, certainly um, you know, saw the need and had the heart for the disabled community. Oh, that's great. That's that's um, rare these days. So we also had a religious freedom law go into effect this week and um, regarding clergy, clergy visitation. Again, another situation that came up because of COVID. And um, early on, uh, the hospitals closed down, did not want people coming in and visiting loved ones. I know there are a lot of heartbreaking stories of people passing alone in a hospital of COVID because they would not let people in. Then it turned into um, an unfair situation. So talk a little bit about what the our answer was. Well, and remember, uh, this law had a lot of irony in it because Representative Wynn um, had a personal crisis in his family happen after he proposed this law, which was really interesting um, in that his brother and sister-in-law were in a horrible fire and ultimately perished. But he drove over to California to go see them because it's a crisis. And they had two children, and they only allowed the two children briefly to go in, but they wouldn't allow a third person or anyone else um, go in. And so this just hammered at home how badly we needed it. Um, and folks were telling him at the beginning it wasn't really necessary. Why are we doing this? And that was a prime example of why it was. So if hospitals allow in-person visits of any kind or from anyone, they have to facilitate clergy being able to come in as well. Um, the stipulation is if they aren't 
aren't allowing anybody in, they still have to do a virtual visit. Of course, that had controversies of its own because some denominations don't really believe that that's effective, but that was a compromise that had to be made at the end to kind of make sure that at least, um, you know, they had that opportunity to say their last rites or to do what they needed to do and visit with their clergy prior to passing. So huge win. Yeah. And uh, COVID, I was just thinking, you know, COVID has brought up some things, things that we really have taken for granted for a long time. (laughs) Absolutely. And we've made sure that the hospitals know about both of these two things. (laughs) So we've sent them a friendly letter, uh, making sure and letting them know that we're watching to make sure that that these laws are implemented in their own practices, um, not just on the books in the state law. You also sent a letter to the uh, school superintendents. We did. On, a, on another <laughs> law, another major law um, this past session, that's the parental rights and sex education law that I think um, really is, it's very significant. Um, let's talk a little bit about, I know we've talked about this in the past, but let's remind people what this is all about. Yeah, this week. What's, what's in effect this week, Kathy? <laughs> well, it, um, the district and charter schools are not allowed to provide sex education in grades K through 4. And my guess is many listeners, wait a minute, they're doing sex education mm. in kindergarten, mm. first grade, and second grade. And yes, um, the the sex education, those who are strong proponents of sex education in the schools want it kindergarten through 12th grade. So no longer in Arizona schools can you do it before fifth grade. And then for a long time, or for a number of years, we've had opt-in parental consent for any sex education courses. But what we have seen, of course, is that sexuality instruction happens in other classrooms as well. So the law now also says that if it's sexuality in another classroom, then you have to have parental opt-in consent as well. And the example that I've remembered for a long time is a mom calling me and saying her daughter in an AP English class was given an assignment of reading a novel that was pornographic and filthy. Mm -hmm. And so in my view, under this new law, if the schools start to do that, then, okay, um, you better get mom or dad's permission for that student, for that to be an assignment. Um, the law already requires to be um, to provide an accommodation if there's a moral or religious belief, objection to that kind of assignment, but we just need more teeth to it, and so now it's opt-in parental consent. Right. And I think it's important um, to point out that this law does not dictate any curriculum. It does not say you cannot have sex education in your school district or, or whatever. It just says if you're going to, then parents have to know about it. They ha- And even if it's not in a sex education class, like you mentioned, parents need to know about it. They need to sign off on it. And they need to have those materials available to them because that's the other thing the law does. Right. Very much so. And as the school district, when they're considering a sex education curriculum, there are notice and transparency requirements as far as, what, 60 days? for mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, two hearings. I mean, it's laid out. And so parents who have their children in district and charter schools, it's up to you now to find out what your school district is doing in sex education. Are they following the law? Um, Lisa had also done a letter. I mean, the letter to superintendents lays it all out. Mm-hmm. We have a five minutes for families that laid it all out. Yes. We can get that to you. Um, go on azpolicy.org. You can get that, get a copy of that letter. Um, but that's what uh, you've got to, that's where you've got a real opportunity now. Right. And they're listening. And as we know, uh, parents are a lot more engaged these days yes. because um, this stuff has come to the surface and um, us as well as others have helped to highlight that. So we're giving the power to the parents to go and contact, and they must 
give you the information that you can review and see exactly what they're teaching your your kids. I know that they do it in history class a lot. There's a lot of sexuality education in history classes based on things that have happened that maybe are good to know. But as a parent, I want to know how you're presenting it. I want to know what materials you're using, um, what your references are, what books you're referring to philosophers you're referring to. I want to know that. And this just gives parents that opportunity to be empowered to go in and and have the right and to be able to point at something in statute and say, oh, no, 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 you need to read this. You have to you have to give this to me Uh, very politely. But it is the law. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You have to be your own advocate and advocate for your own family. Uh, A couple of educational freedom provisions, not everything we were hoping for, but uh, talk real briefly about a few of the things, the um, STOs and the ESA Mm. adjustments. Well, there are some reforms to the ESA program designed to help parents, uh, parents that are having trouble with really getting their empowerment scholarship account for their children. On the scholarship tuition organization side, there are also some additional improvements to just, uh, on the ESA side, let me just mention where you had to be in school for 100 days prior, in a public school prior to getting an ESA. Now it's down to 30 days. Yeah. Uh, and so that that's a big change for parents. That really helps parents. On the, if you're getting a scholarship through the scholarship tax credit program, there are also some changes in some of the requirements on who would qualify that are intended to help parents enable it more to qualify. And then on the program that's called Lexi's Law, that is for uh, the technical term is displaced or disabled students. Um, by you know disabled students, Lexi was a, a young girl who had a number of um, disabilities or special needs, um, whether it was uh, she had cerebral palsy, she had um, partial blindness, I believe. And so it's uh, named in her honor and how, how well she thrived when she had a scholarship to go to a school that was a uh, private school that was able to meet her needs. It's been capped at $5 million for uh, the whole time it's been in existence, so we got another million added to it. And let me just say, I, I almost said a measly little million added right. to it. I mean, <laughs> we're glad we're glad that we got the million, but this program should have gotten more millions, and so hopefully that will happen. It's in the a future. wonderful program, and yeah, hopefully it will, because that that just seems a little bit low of a number to me too. And it saves the state money. You know, the, in the, long the run private schools are, are educating these children for less than what it costs in the and public they're more schools. equipped to do so. Yes. Exactly. And there are a couple other key laws that are going into effect that CAP was not involved in, but I know a lot of um, a lot of people that follow CAP are interested in. Those are the election laws that went into effect on some, some good ones, I think, that um, are designed to really, you know, make sure that their integrity is intact when it comes to elections. And one of them was to uh, make sure that if you are getting a mail-in ballot, that you are on the list and you are are still alive and you still want that and it is, you have not moved out of the state and so they basically are just asking if you have not voted with your early ballot uh, two consecutive years I think it is then they will ask you do you still want this if they don't hear back from you they'll take you off the list now you're still a registered voter but you'll have to actually actively try to get back on that early it's just all list. about voter integrity it's about making sure that your vote counts all the things that everybody wants right now we've had so much controversy in the last election cycle that putting in these assurances are just a positive they're just a positive thing well and stay tuned because we will be helping um, other allies who have launched a ballot measure for 
in November of 2022 to uh, provide additional voter um, protection, uh, not voter protection, but election integrity issues. So stay tuned. We'll be talking about that more in the oh, future. Oh, you, you can <laughs> tease. That. Tease. Our, our, friends, our friends at um, Free Enterprise Club and other allies have launched a, a voter integrity type of ballot measure that has a number of provisions. Mm. provisions so stay tuned. Cause, Very exciting. Because we will be um, joining in with that. We learn something new every day. We <laughs> well, That's an exciting place to stop. So <laughs> we'll finish up. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next week. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you for listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and give a review on any podcast platform you use. For more information, visit azpolicy.org.